Section 29 of Great Ghost Stories by Joseph Lewis French. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 29. Claremond, Part 4. Be that as it may, I lived, at least I believed that I lived, in Venice. I have never been able to discover rightly how much of illusion and how much of reality there was in this fantastic adventure. We dwelt in a great palace on the Canaleo, filled with frescoes and statues, and containing two Titians in the noblest style of the great master, which were hung in Claremont's chamber. It was a palace well worthy of a king. We each had our own gondola, our barcaroli in family livery, our music hall, and our special poet. Claremont always lived upon a magnificent scale. There was something of Cleopatra in her nature. As for me, I had the retinue of a prince's son, and I was regarded with as much reverential respect as though I had been of the family of one of the twelve apostles or the four evangelists of the most serene republic. I would not have turned aside to allow even the doge to pass, and I do not believe that since Satan fell from heaven any creature was ever prouder or more insolent than I. I went to the ridotto and played with a luck which seemed absolutely infernal. I received the best of all society, the sons of ruined families, women of the theater, shrewd knaves, parasites, hectoring swashbucklers. But notwithstanding the dissipation of such a life, I always remained faithful to Claremont. I loved her wildly. She would have excited satiety itself and chained inconstancy. To have Claremont was to have twenty mistresses, aye, to possess all women, so mobile, so varied of aspect, so fresh and new charms was she all in herself, a very chameleon of a woman in sooth. She made you commit with her the infidelity you would have committed with another, by donning to perfection the character, the attraction, the style of beauty of the woman who appeared to please you. She returned my love a hundredfold, and it was in vain that the young patricians and even the ancients of the Council of Ten made her the most magnificent proposals. A Foscari even went so far as to offer to espouse her. She rejected all his overtures. Of gold she had enough. She wished no longer for anything but love, a love youthful, pure, evoked by herself, and which should be a first and last passion. I would have been perfectly happy, but for a cursed nightmare which recurred every night, and in which I believed myself to be a poor village curé, practicing mortification and penance for my excesses during the day. Reassured by my constant association with her, I never thought further of the strange manner in which I had become acquainted with Claremont. But the words of the Abbe Serapion concerning her 
recurred often to my memory, and never ceased to cause me uneasiness. For some time the health of Claremond had not been so good as usual. Her complexion grew paler day by day. The physicians who were summoned could not comprehend the nature of her malady and knew not how to treat it. They all prescribed some insignificant remedies and never called a second time. Her paleness, nevertheless, visibly increased, and she became colder and colder until she seemed almost as white and dead as upon that memorable night in the unknown castle. I grieved with anguish unspeakable to behold her thus slowly perishing, and she, touched by my agony, smiled upon me sweetly and sadly with the fateful smile of those who feel that they must die. One morning I was seated at her bedside, after breakfasting from a little table placed close at hand, so that I might not be obliged to leave her for a single instant. In the act of cutting some fruit, I accidentally inflicted rather a deep gash on my finger. The blood immediately gushed forth in a little purple jet, and a few drops spurted upon Claremond. Her eyes flashed. Her face suddenly assumed an expression of savage and ferocious joy such as I had never before observed in her. She leaped out of her bed with animal agility, the agility, as it were, of an ape or a cat, and sprang upon my wound which she commenced to suck with an air of unutterable pleasure. She swallowed the blood in little mouthfuls, slowly and carefully, like a connoisseur tasting a wine from Sherez or Syracuse. Gradually her eyelids half-closed, and the pupils of her green eyes became oblong instead of round. From time to time she paused in order to kiss my hand. Then she would recommence to press her lips to the lips of the wound in order to coax forth a few more ruddy drops. When she found that the blood would no longer come, she arose with eyes liquid and brilliant, rosier than a May dawn her face full and fresh, her hand warm and moist, in fine, more beautiful than ever, and in the most perfect health. I shall not die, I shall not die, she cried, clinging to my neck, half mad with joy. I can love thee yet for a long time. My life is thine and all that is of me comes from thee. A few drops of thy rich and noble blood, more precious and more potent than all the elixirs of the earth, have given me back life. This scene long haunted my memory, and inspired me with strange doubts in regard to Claremont and the same evening, when slumber had transported me to my presbytery, I beheld the Abbe Serapion, graver and more anxious of aspect than ever. He gazed attentively at me, and sorrowfully exclaimed, Not content with losing your soul, 
You now desire also to lose your body. Wretched young man, into how terrible a plight you have fallen. The tone in which he uttered these words powerfully affected me. But in spite of its vividness, even that impression was soon dissipated, and a thousand other cares erased it from my mind. At last one evening, while looking into a mirror whose traitorous position she had not taken into account, I saw Claremond in the act of emptying a powder into the cup of spiced wine which she had long been in the habit of preparing after our repasts. I took the cup, feigned to carry it to my lips, and then placed it on the nearest article of furniture as though intending to finish it at my leisure. Taking advantage of a moment when the fair one's back was turned, I threw the contents under the table, after which I retired to my chamber and went to bed, fully resolved not to sleep, but to watch and discover what should come of all this mystery. I did not have to wait long. Claremond entered in her nightdress, and having removed her apparel, crept into bed and lay down beside me. When she felt assured that I was asleep, she bared my arm, and drawing a gold pin from her hair, commenced to murmur in a low voice, One drop, only one drop, one ruby at the end of my needle. Since thou lovest me yet, I must not die. Ah, poor love, his beautiful blood, so brightly purple, I must drink it. Sleep, my only treasure. Sleep, my God, my child. I will do thee no harm. I will only take of thy life what I must to keep my own from being forever extinguished. But that I love thee so much, I could well resolve to have other lovers whose veins I could drain. But since I have known thee, all other men have become hateful to me. Ah, the beautiful arm, how round it is, how white it is. How shall I ever dare to prick this pretty blue vein. And while thus murmuring to herself, she wept, and I felt her tears raining on my arm as she clasped it with her hands. At last she took the resolve, slightly punctured me with her pin, and commenced to suck up the blood which oozed from the place. Although she swallowed only a few drops, the fear of weakening me soon seized her, and she carefully tied a little band around my arm, afterward rubbing the wound with an ungent which immediately cicatrized it. Further doubts were impossible. The Abbe Serapion was right. Notwithstanding this positive knowledge, however, I could not cease to love Claremont, and I would gladly of my own accord have given her all the blood she required to sustain her factitious life. Moreover, I felt but little fear of her. The woman seemed to plead with me for the vampire, and what I had already heard and seen sufficed to reassure me completely. 
In those days I had plenteous veins, which would not have been so easily exhausted as at present, and I would not have thought of bargaining for my blood drop by drop. I would rather have opened myself the veins of my arm and said to her, Drink, and may my love infiltrate itself throughout thy body together with my blood. I carefully avoided ever making the least reference to the narcotic drink she had prepared for me, or to the incident of the pin, and we lived in the most perfect harmony. Yet, my priestly scruples commenced to torment me more than ever, and I was at a loss to imagine what new penance I could invent in order to mortify and subdue my flesh. Although these visions were involuntary, and though I did not actually participate in anything relating to them, I could not dare to touch the body of Christ with hands so impure and a mind defiled by such debauches, whether real or imaginary. In the effort to avoid falling under the influence of these wearisome hallucinations, I strove to prevent myself from being overcome by sleep. I held my eyelids open with my fingers and stood for hours together leaning upright against the wall, fighting sleep with all my might. But the dust of drowsiness invariably gathered upon my eyes at last, and finding all resistance useless, I would have to let my arms fall in the extremity of despairing weariness, and the current of slumber would again bear me away to the perfidious shores. Serapion addressed me with the most vehement exhortations, severely reproaching me for my softness and want of fervor. Finally, one day when I was more wretched than usual, he said to me, there is but one way by which you can obtain relief from this continual torment, and though it is an extreme measure, it must be made use of. Violent diseases require violent remedies. I know where Clermont is buried. It is necessary that we shall disinter her remains, and that you shall behold in how pitiable a state the object of your love is. Then you will no longer be tempted to lose your soul for the sake of an unclean corpse devoured by worms and ready to crumble into dust. That will assuredly restore you to yourself. For my part, I was so tired of this double life that I at once consented, desiring to ascertain beyond a doubt whether a priest or a gentleman had been the victim of delusion. I had become fully resolved either to kill one of the two men within me for the benefit of the other, or else to kill both, for so terrible an existence could not last long and be endured. The Abbe Serapion provided himself with a mattock, a lever, and a lantern, and at midnight we wended our way to the cemetery of Blank, the location and place of which were perfectly familiar to him. 
after having directed the rays of the dark lantern upon the inscriptions of several tombs we came at last upon a great slab half concealed by huge weeds and devoured by mosses and parasitic plants whereupon we deciphered the opening lines of the epitaph here lies claremond who was famed in her lifetime as the fairest of women it is here without a doubt muttered serapion and placing his lantern on the ground he forced the point of the lever under the edge of the stone and commenced to raise it the stone yielded and he proceeded to work with the mattock Darker and more silent than the night itself, I stood by and watched him do it, while he, bending over his dismal toil, streamed with sweat, panted, and his hard-coming breath seemed to have the harsh tone of a death-rattle. It was a weird scene, and had any persons from without beheld us, they would assuredly have taken us rather for profane wretches and shroud-stealers than for priests of God. There was something grim and fierce in Serapion's zeal which lent him the air of a demon rather than of an apostle or an angel, and his great aquiline face, with all its stern features brought out in strong relief by the lantern light, had something fearsome in it which enhanced the unpleasant fancy. I felt an icy sweat come out upon my forehead in huge beads, and my hair stood up with a hideous fear. Within the depths of my own heart I felt that the act of the austere Serapion was an abominable sacrilege, and I could have prayed that a triangle of fire would issue from the entrails of the dark clouds heavily rolling above us to reduce him to cinders. The owls which had been nestling in the cypress trees, startled by the gleam of the lantern, flew against it from time to time, striking their dusty wings against its panes and uttering plaintive cries of lamentation wild foxes yelped in the far darkness and a thousand sinister noises detached themselves from the silence at last serapion's mattock struck the coffin itself making its planks re-echo with a deep sonorous sound with that terrible sound nothingness utters when stricken he wrenched apart and tore up the lid and i beheld claremond pallid as a figure of marble with hands joined her white winding sheet made but one fold from her head to her feet a little crimson drop sparkled like a speck of dew at one corner of her colorless mouth serapion at this spectacle burst into fury ah thou art here demon impure courtesan drinker of blood and gold and he flung holy water upon the corpse and the coffin over which he traced the sign of the cross with his sprinkler 
Poor Claramond had no sooner been touched by the blessed spray than her beautiful body crumbled into dust and became only a shapeless and frightful mass of cinders and half-calcined bones. "'Behold your mistress, my lord Romold,' cried the inexorable priest as he pointed to these sad remains." will you be easily tempted after this to promenade on the lido or at fusina with your beauty i covered my face with my hands a vast ruin had taken place within me i returned to my presbytery and the noble lord romold the lover of claramond separated himself from the poor priest with whom he had kept such strange company so long but once only, the following night, I saw Claramond. She said to me, as she had said the first time at the portals of the church, Unhappy man, unhappy man, what hast thou done? Wherefore have hearkened to that imbecile priest? Wert thou not happy? and what harm had i ever done thee that thou shouldest violate my poor tomb and lay bare the miseries of my nothingness all communication between our souls and our bodies is henceforth for ever broken adieu thou will yet regret me she vanished in air as smoke and i never saw her more Alas, she spoke truly indeed. I have regretted her more than once, and I regret her still. My soul's peace has been very dearly bought. The love of God was not too much to replace such a love as hers. And this, brother, is the story of my youth. Never gaze upon a woman and walk abroad only with eyes ever fixed upon the ground. For however chaste and watchful one may be, the error of a single moment is enough to make one lose eternity. End of section twenty nine. End of Claremond by Theophile Gautier.